scripture passage for today is 1 Corinthians 15. And if you have your Bible or a phone nearby, I encourage you to turn there and read along with me. And as you're turning there, I encourage you to think about the anticipation and the eagerness that the believers in Corinth would have felt as they waited for Paul's letter. And as you're preparing to follow along, Let me encourage you to have the same eagerness and anticipation of what the Lord our God is saying to us, his church family, by the Spirit through his servant, the Apostle Paul. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 58. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed." Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life, only we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, 
which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, and it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Lauren, for that reading. I really appreciate it. And uh, wow, what a chapter, huh? That's long. There's a lot there. Two summers ago, my family and I were in America, Montana to be specific, and went to Yellowstone, which I don't think is Montana. Anyway, we went to Yellowstone. We were in Montana at one point. I'm not sure what state we ended up in. Anyway, all I'm trying to say is 1 Corinthians 15 is Yellowstone, okay? I'm going to take you on a little drive. We're going to drive through the park, but there's no way you're taking this all in in one day, okay? So hopefully our trip together uh, through Yellowstone, 1 Corinthians 15, will inspire you to take a trip of your own and subsequent trips of your own uh, to see all the beautiful reality that's here um, in regards to the resurrection to come, okay? Deal? Because just, we just can't. I could hit it all today if you want to. We'll stop for lunch. We'll come back. We'll, we'll be done by the time the Super Bowl kicks off tomorrow morning. That's seriously, okay? So let's pray and we'll get right down to work. Father, we thank you for uh, the beautiful reality of the resurrection. Help us to see it with new eyes and to be inspired not only by yesterday's resurrection of Jesus, but what that resurrection speaks about our future resurrection to come. And may we live lives shaped by uh, that beautiful reality. 
by your grace, through your spirit, for your fame, and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. So our series theme is gospel formed. You know this by now. We got one week left to go. It's sad. I feel like I'm saying goodbye to a long friend. Uh, But it's gospel formed becoming who we are, a united family in a fractured city. Today, here's the big idea that we're going to see in chapter 15. We become who we are when we live today like tomorrow's resurrection is the most certain and hopeful reality of our existence. In 2019, Netflix released an original series entitled Afterlife featuring Ricky Gervais. Does anybody publicly want to admit that they've watched it? Yeah, about the same as the first. All right. Um, You can tell me later that you watched it. It's okay. Ricky Gervais plays a character by the name of Tony. Tony is a widower who is consumed with mourning the death of his wife every second of every day. In the storyline, there's his wife. She dies prematurely from cancer, and it wrecks him. And so the series really is about the stages of grief. But more specifically, Ricky Gervais is an atheist. And so he wrote the show from that perspective. Tony in the show is an atheist. And so it's the stages of grief through a humanist or an atheistic uh, lens. It's a raw show. It's powerful. Uh, It's compelling, even redemptive. Not so much season one. There's there's a lot of brokenness there, but uh, season two is redemptive. It's also crass, okay? Just... It's a British comedy, just, it's British, and so please don't go away from here and tell your mom or your grandmother that your pastor recommended, like, don't. Um, I did take it in because I was so, I found the story to be compelling, but just full disclosure, I want you to know that it is, it is crass. Uh, in real life, Ricky Gervais is a vocal atheist, very vocal about his athe- atheism, but gracious. A couple years ago, he wrote a, an op-ed for the New York Times at the holiday season, in which he described his atheism and his move towards it away from Christianity. But he was very kind in the way he wrote to to us, people of faith in in Christianity and and other faith groups. Um, He wasn't always an atheist. Of his childhood, he wrote, I used to believe in God. I loved Jesus, and he was my hero. Well, that's his childhood story. Uh, In Afterlife, his character Tony is a vocal atheist without the filter, without the grace, um, on purpose. That's the way the show was designed. Expressing his grief early in the the series, um, Ricky's character says this, I'd rather be nowhere with her than somewhere without her. So you can, hear, you can hear a lot in there. You can hear grief, right? We, know, we, we can see grief. But you also hear and see the grief kind of through the lens of a, of a humanist or an atheist. And you, you can see it. I'd rather be nowhere with her than somewhere, this life right now, without her. You can hear the grief and you can see it through his eyes. Later on in the show, he says, I mean, listen, you can believe in an afterlife if that's what makes you feel better. But once you realize you're not going to be around forever, I think that is what makes life so magical. Those lines, to be fair to Ricky, those lines are a very accurate representation of humanism, which is a commonly held position in our culture. I have friends who are humanists and family members who are are humanists. Um, Before faith in Jesus, I too was a humanist, even though I didn't know it by that name, right? Most of us were. Humanists reject the idea or belief in a supernatural, supernatural being, and so typically they'd categorize themselves as, hey, I'm an agnostic, I'd kind of be like a soft core um, humanist, but more typically as, as an atheist, right? Be, I would be an atheist. Humanists have no belief in an afterlife, and so the focus is on seeking happiness. Everything's got to be in this life right here. There's nothing else to come. So, of course, there's a spectrum of belief in our culture when it comes to the afterlife, right? So we got humanism all the way down on one end, atheism down on one end. But there's a full spectrum in our culture. And um, we're, we're familiar with some of the popular voices of humanism. You could point to Carl Sagan or Stephen Hawking. Those are two better-known voices. Carl Sagan said this. He said, man, listen, I, I would love to believe that when I die, I will live again. He wanted to believe that. But then what he said was, I know nothing to suggest that it is more than wishful thinking to hope so. So that was his position. And then you're all familiar with Stephen Hawking. He said, the belief that heaven or an afterlife awaits us is a fairy story. I think he's British. I think that's how you say fairy tale in Britain. So it's fairy tale um, for people who are afraid of death. That's what he said. People who are afraid of death. 
Now at the other end, so if we have humanism down here, atheism, on the other end of the spectrum in our culture would be kind of what we could just say is general spiritualism, right? We got a lot of spiritualism in the West. Uh, One popular voice from spiritualism would be Deepak Chopra. You guys, I can never say his last name right. Deepak, we'll just roll with that. Uh, You may be familiar with him. So here's his voice and here's what general spiritualism sounds like as it relates to the afterlife. He goes, after we die, we remain motivated, which is good news because I have a hard time saying motivated in this life. But he says, uh, after we die, we remain motivated. A soul moves according to a desire from one astral plane to another, projecting as in a dream whatever sights and people, guides and astral entities it needs for its own advancement. Okay, so that'd be like general spiritualism. A lot of you take in Joe Rogan. You got some Joe Rogan fans in our family and he's a really good representation of general spiritualism in our culture now. Uh, He's all about the afterlife. He's all about spiritualism and spirituality. Um, He's all about his hallucinogenic hallucinogenic drugs as it relates to all of this. So very, very, very spiritual. Uh, So we would put him in that category as well, right? So our culture's got this broad spectrum of views as it relates to the afterlife. And Corinth was the same way. So the people who received this letter from Paul about a resurrection, living in the same kind of culture that we do, varying views, but they had, a, they had a, an open mind to the afterlife. Most people in that day and age soundly rejected the idea that there would be an embodied afterlife. No such thing. They really rejected that. But they definitely believed that there'd be some kind of disembodied experience into the future after death. So people in Corinth were maybe middle of the road on the spectrum, right? Maybe, maybe middle of the road for the most part. This was a common tombstone inscription in that day and age. Here it is, um, obviously translated. This was their cultural view. I was not, and then I was, and then I am not. And so in eternity or in the afterlife, I am free from wishes, right? A a ceasing to exist. That was so common that it was actually condensed down to initials, very much like what we do with rest in peace. And so you see rip on a tombstone. They had, this was their cultural rest in peace. And so it was inscribed everywhere. Another one, here's just kind of a fascinating quote from their culture. It said, when the dust has drunk a person's blood, once he's dead, there is no resurrection, so no bodily resurrection. Now, Christians in Corinth, what we got to understand is this is their culture, right? This is why this is important. This is their background. This is what they're coming out of. And so just like us, they are learning to be followers of Jesus. So their views, wherever they were at on the spectrum, whether they're down here with um, uh, humanists and atheists and um, Stephen Hawking's and, and so forth, or whether they're down there with, with Joe Rogan and Deepak, like their views are going to be reshaped by the gospel. And we're the same way. We all come from different places on the spectrum about everything in life. And so the gospel is gradually reshaping us. And so Paul's writing to them and he says this in verse 12, he says, guys, yo, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? Like we've talked about this as it relates to Jesus, but some of you are still more shaped by the culture than you are shaped by the gospel. That's the whole point of this chapter. And so you're, you're saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, I just want to point this out at the beginning. When, when we see the word resurrection in the New Testament, especially when Paul's using it, he's not just simply talking about life after death. Like everybody in the culture already believed in life after death, and many people in our culture believe in life after death. So it's not simply that. Resurrection is that in the New Testament, people already dead and likely decomposed, maybe even no physical body anymore, maybe decomposed into ashes, spread to the winds, whatever. People already dead are given new bodies that return to a meaningful existence after death. As a, as a child, uh, I remember there being shows that I watched too. I was not really interested in life after death because I just had grown to understand that it would be meaningless and purposeless and boring and sitting on clouds and just nothing I would care to do, right? We want work and meaning and purpose and pursue all these things. And the Bible gives us a beautiful picture of a meaningful life after death. So we're the same. We're influenced by culture. We're slowly reshaped by the gospel. So guys, listen, let's be honest. Paul could ask us the same question. He could write us the same letter and say the same thing. He could ask us this question. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? How can you say that? You're like, I haven't said that. But yes, you have. I've heard some of you say that. I've seen some of you write that. You know how? You know how we say it in our, we don't say it that way. What do we say? What do we say? YOLO. YOLO, that is the modern equivalent of that statement right there. You only live once. 
you only live once. I've said it casually. I've, I've used a hashtag on it. When we say that, when we invoke that idea in our culture, it's the same thing as suggesting there's no resurrection of the dead, no meaningful future, just disconnected realities. All that matters is right now, whatever right now is, right? And so here's what we're going to see today. Again, we become who we are when we live, not shaped by YOLO or whatever cultural value we have, but when we live today, like tomorrow's resurrection is the most certain and hopeful reality of our existence. So we'll break the chapter down. It's a big big chapter. We'll break it down three ways just so we can manage it. The first way is this. We're going to see that yesterday's resurrection is our most important reality. So before we can focus on tomorrow's resurrection, we need to do the groundwork with yesterday's. We'll do that. And then we'll see that tomorrow's resurrection shapes my decision today, shapes my today. Everything about it shapes my existence right now. And then finally, in the final third of the chapter, we'll see that tomorrow's resurrection is a story. It's a beautiful story. It's compelling. It's more beautiful than humanism. But it's a story of mystery and a story of victory. All right, so let's begin with yesterday's resurrection being our most important reality today. Again, verse 12, Paul says, yo, some of you guys are saying there's no resurrection of the dead, but that's weird because look in verse 1 and verse 11. Not too long ago, Paul says... You're rejecting it now, but not too long ago, verse 1, you received the gospel. You, you received news about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And not only did you receive it, verse 1, look at verse 11. You know, whether Paul says whether I told it to you or whether somebody else told it to you, we, we, we proclaim this good news to you. And what? You believed, like you received the gospel and believed in the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection to come. And so now in verse 3, Paul says, listen, the news about the resurrection is of first importance to you. Whether you reject the resurrection or not, whether you embrace it or not, doesn't matter. Whether you've never heard this before, doesn't matter. The resurrection, both past and future, is the most important reality of your existence right now. Why? Well, two primary reasons. First, Paul argues that Jesus' resurrection is a key piece of the gospel story. It's part of God's plan for our rescue. You see that in verses 3 and 4 where it says that Jesus was raised on the third day. What? According to Scripture. That's Paul's way of saying it was God's plan all along. It was not an accident that Jesus died, not an accident that Jesus was buried, not plan B. God's primary plan A from before the beginning of time that he would rescue rebel sons and daughters through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. God's plan for our rescue. And so... No resurrection, no rescue, no rescue. Death is meaningless. Jesus' death means nothing apart from the resurrection. He's dead and in a grave. He's not a hero. He's not, you could join Ricky Gervais. He's not a hero. He's not a rescuing king. He's not good. He's not powerful. Can't even save himself. How's he going to rescue you? Not going to. Can't do it. Won't do it. Okay? So the good news unravels if there's no resurrection, Dead Jesus. The gospel ceases to be good news for us. Paul argues in verse 2, he says, look, you are being saved if, he adds a condition, if the evidence that you're being rescued by Jesus is that you are holding fast to the word I preached to you, the word meaning the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, unless, he says, you believed in vain. So that's Paul's way of saying that a rejection of Jesus' resurrection is a rejection of the gospel. You can't have the death and reject the resurrection. You can't, they come together. It's the same story. So that's why yesterday's resurrection is my most important reality today, because it speaks to my rescue. If the resurrection didn't happen, I can't be rescued from my brokenness and my rebellion, my sin. If the resurrection happened, and I believe I can be rescued from my rebellion. So that is our our hope right off the bat. Our rescue hinges on the resurrection. Secondly, just as Jesus' death pays the penalty for our sin, the resurrection is God's power expended for your good. And this is really personal for Paul. Let me show you, and it should be really personal for us. Look at how Paul writes about himself in verse 8. He says, I was untimely born. That word untimely born is, if we were to 
translate it one for one, he would be writing, I was miscarried. Now, clearly he wasn't miscarried. He was birthed into existence. And let me just say, like my wife and I have experienced several miscarriages. I get there's a lot of pain and wounding around miscarriage. So this is not Paul making light of a painful reality in our broken world. This is Paul trying to capture the reality of that brokenness in this world and say, I, was, I lived in such rebellion against the God who created me. It was as if I wasn't fully formed and I wasn't viable. And like miscar- miscarriage is so painful because it's ugly and hideous and not the way God intended, right? So it carries pain. That's what Paul's saying. That pain, his existence was not the way God intended. There was a hideousness about it. It was, it was unbearable, right? It was, it was inconsolable. So that's what he's saying. And that's how Jesus found Paul. That's why this is so personal for him. And then in verse nine, he says, I was unworthy because I persecuted God's family. That's how Jesus found me. I was his enemy, but he gave me grace. He gave me grace. Though I was untimely born, miscarried, just not fully formed, not viable, kind of a hideous existence and so unworthy, I have received, verse 10, this unstoppable grace from God. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Guys, the, the grace that Paul received as a result of Jesus' resurrection from the dead was powerfully life-giving. So life-giving, Paul says, it seemed like he worked harder than any of the other apostles. He says, but it wasn't me. It was the resurrection power of Jesus in me, or what Paul calls the grace of God that is with me. So he's not ranking himself. He's not saying he's better. He's just saying how profound, the, the, the profound difference the resurrection made for me personally was I was this. I was, I was just, my life was this hideous existence in rebellion to God, but he expended power for my good and, and rescued me into his family. And now look, people who look at my life think I'm the best apostle there ever has been, but it's not me. It's God's power expended for my good, his grace in me. So life-giving, so life-giving, death to life. Now living his created purpose for God's fame and the good of other people. So why is the resurrection the most important reality for us today? No resurrection? Guys, listen, no chance for a personal redemption for you. No redemptive storyline for you. The cross is about penalty, we saw that, but resurrection is about power. So Paul was not redeeming himself. There's no hope or no chance that he could. It's the resurrection of Jesus, the power of God expended for Paul's good that was the pen writing Paul's redemption story. Guys, the power that is presently at work writing your redemptive story, not only reconciling you to God, but healing you and restoring you and reconciling you to other people is the resurrection power of Jesus, not you and not me, and not moralism, and not religion, Jesus and his resurrection. The gospel says that every one of us were untimely born and unworthy. Paul's not unique. We're just like him if we're honest. So no resurrection power for us, no personal redemption, and that's why yesterday's resurrection is your most important reality today. Yesterday's resurrection accomplished my rescue, and it empowers my redemption, okay? That's why it matters. It accomplished your rescue, and it is empowering the storyline of the redemption that's being written in your life. Secondly, so we see, okay, so we look, we look back, we see yesterday's resurrection, how it frames everything else. And so now let's, now let's turn around and look forward like Paul does in the chapter to see that tomorrow's resurrection as a result of yesterday's resur- resurrection, tomorrow, my future resurrection is the most certain and hopeful reality of my existence. It shapes my day today, every moment, right? So now from verses 12 to 34, Paul's going to do this little, uh, little trick. He's going to start out with his argument's going to be, look, if there is no resurrection, this is true, this is true, this is true, this is not true, this is not true, right? That's how he's going to roll. And then partway through, you'll, you heard him when Laura re- Lauren read, he shifts and he says, but the resurrection did happen. And because it did, here are the results, like here's the outcome for us, right? For life. And then he finishes that section with, okay, since it did happen, here's what a life lived in response to the resurrection actually looks like, just so you know where we're going in this section, okay? So he starts in verse 12 and 13, and he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, there is no hope for broken rebel people in this broken rebel world. Verse 13 and 16, he says, if there's no resurrection, Christ has not been raised from the dead, okay? 
Jesus did not come back from the dead. Verse 14, if Jesus has not been raised, your preaching, whatever John's running his mouth for right now, and your faith, like your tendency to receive and believe and act on what John's saying right now, are in vain. This is Paul's churchy, nice way of saying, you're an idiot, right? That's what he's saying. Uh, We're idiots. Verse 15, we're misrepresenting God. He's a liar. We're liars, or at best, we're naive simpletons, right? Which is kind of the cultural view of religion anyway. Uh, Marx was famous for saying that religion is the opiate of the masses. I haven't been on opiates. Some of you have, and it's not a compliment that Marx is paying, right? So that's what he's suggesting. Like, religion is this drug that we use to get ourselves through this existence, right? So we're simpletons at best. Paul says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And then he says, you're still in your sins. Now, remember how he described his life when he was in his sins, right? When he was in active rebellion against Jesus, how did he describe himself? Essentially as one who was miscarried, right? It's really a very uncomfortable image to wrestle with. But guys, that's the reality. If Jesus is not resurrected, that's, that, that's the best your existence will ever get in this broken world. That's it. That's the high point right there. So if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, this is our reality. It's our reality. Then he says in verse 18, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, those who have died hoping in Christ are gone forever. They cease to exist. Verse 19, if Christ only provides hope for this life, we of all people are most to be pitied. But in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. Okay, so we got to kind of pause there because uh, basically everything that we've been reviewing, if the resurrection is not true, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, that is the humanist worldview. That is the atheist position right there. Guys, humanism, humanism tells a sad story. It's not a hopeful narrative. It's not a life-giving narrative. It may be for some a logical narrative, but it's a sad, sad story. It's hopeless. And the resurrection of Jesus speaks a better and a more beautiful story over our existence. And Paul's going to show us how. He's going to show us how the resurrection tells the story of a rescuing king who is making all the sad things come untrue and bringing all these rebel sons and daughters back to the father. Jesus is that rescuing king who succeeded where we filled. We were, in a sense, to use Paul's imagery again, the miscarried ones in our rebellion. Jesus is the only one born on time, fully formed, healthy, living in submission to the father, living his created purpose. Like Jesus is all of that, but not us. So he succeeds where we fail. And since Jesus is this rescuing king, it means that like Paul, not only can we know profound personal redemption, there will also be redemption on a global scale, right? Here's, here's the hope. Verse 20 says, Jesus is the what? What does it say? First fruits. Any farmers in the room? We don't really have farmers around here anymore, huh? I grew up in the Northeast around cornfields. And uh, man, midsummer, the stocks are coming. You start to see the cobs and you know what's coming, the roadside corn on the cob stands. Fantastic, isn't it? Man picnic time. That's what the word first fruits means. It means the first evidence that there's going to be a really big harvest, bigger than you can count. So Jesus' resurrection, guys, listen, signals widespread global redemption, not just a personal redemption, but global redemption. So if that's true, who should be the most optimistic people in this world? Christians, like people who actually believe in the resurrection, followers of Jesus, we should be not naive, not blind to the brokenness and the rebellion of the world, like honest, but in our honesty, in the pain, in the reality, an unquenchable optimism because of what Jesus' resurrection speaks about the future. And guys, our friends who are humanists don't have that unquenchable source of optimism. Humanism tells a sad story where there is no first fruit, no hope of a future harvest, no hope of healing, no hope of rescue or restoration, none. When you're dead, it's done. Optimism, guys. Christians should be the most optimistic people in this world. Verse 21, Paul says, in Adam, we all die. That's humanism right there. In a sense, that's humanism. They would reject the real Adam. I'm not trying to say they'd say that, but um, 
If you wanted to sum up humanism in two words and a period, you could say, all die, period. Like, that's the best that humanism can offer. Like, here's your shot right now, but be very careful while you're trying to live a full life because if you slip up and die, it's done, it's over. That's all they've got. It's a sad story. But here's the story of the resurrection. In Christ, all will be made alive. Now, Paul qualifies that all, right? Up further in the chapter in verse 1 and 3 and 10, we saw the all would be those who receive the gospel and believe the gospel, respond to the gospel. But anybody who does will be made alive. Guys, optimism. Anyone can know redemption through the resurrection of Jesus. And then Paul begins to unpack the storyline of that redemption. 23, verse 23 to 26 right? He looks back, there's Jesus' resurrection. Then Paul looks forward and says, Jesus is going to return again in the future. And when Jesus returns, every person who belongs to him will be resurrected just like he was, resurrected, Uh, bodily existence. You're getting a body and you will be existing in a meaningful existence, not with a harp on a cloud. That's not at all reality. A meaningful, working, fruitful, joyful, fun, playful, existence, better than the life you know now. This is just a glimmer, a fraction. All the good that you've experienced in this life is a little nibble. It's a taste of the beauty that's to come, okay? It's going to be awesome. So if you're in Christ, you're going to be made alive. We'll be resurrected. Then Paul says, after destroying every rule, power, and authority, right? Every rule, power, and authority, Jesus will have fully established the kingdom. What does that mean, rule, power, and authority? It means that every rebel repented and believed will at that time, at the point of Jesus, be in submission to him and be facing his judgment. That's all you'll be facing at that point. If you've rejected Jesus, you will be knowing uh, his justice. But that's not really individual language right there, is it? That's system language. Look at the language. It's very collective. It's big picture. That's saying that when he returns and when he does this work, Jesus will destroy every, not, just, not just rebel, but rebel system guys. All injustice globally will be finally eradicated at Jesus' return. Guys, I just implore you as Christians, don't be dismissive of systemic injustice. The Bible says systemic injustice exists. So Christians don't have to run from that argument. We actually run toward it, embrace it, because the hope of the resurrection speaks a better word, that Jesus is not only working to redeem and restore now, but um, humanism can only say we can work on it now, but we have no hope that it'll actually be resolved in our lifetime, and if it's not, then it never will be. The hope of the resurrection story is that when Jesus returns, you better believe every systemic injustice will be crushed and eradicated for his fame and his good. It's beautiful. So he's going to work until all his enemies have been trampled down, Paul says, Every injustice eradicated, every wound healed, um, every unrepentant rebel judged. The last enemy that Jesus will defeat is death itself. So death will be gone forever. Another difference between humanism and the resurrection narrative. Humanism would say death will be here forever. That's all that will exist forever, death. The resurrection said death actually dies a death and ceases to exist. What story do you want? What narrative do you want? Right? Death will die and cease to exist. It's beautiful. Jesus' kingdom will be populated by rescued rebels who have experienced a resurrection like his. Jesus, Paul says, is going to personally deliver this kingdom to his father. That's what we see in verses 27 and 28, that the father tasked the son with subjecting a rebel world to the father's uh, rule and reign. That's what he tasked Jesus to do. And so um, when this work is done, the son will say to the father, I did it. It's done. The work that you gave me to do is done. I fulfilled your plan. I did what all of your rebel sons and daughters failed to do, and I did it on their behalf, and now I've led them back to you in full submission to you as restored sons and daughters. Here you go, Dad. A perfectly just kingdom, the way that you created it to be the first time. Here it is. I've done the work, and here it is. And here are your sons and daughters who will now get to live in joyful submission to you in this kingdom for your fame and for the flourishing of others. And I want to point out, this passage is not teaching that Jesus is inferior to the Father. There's a lot of kind of confusing language. It sounds like he's inferior. Maybe he's not even really God. Like, what's going on with all this this language? But here's what's happening. Um, 
the point of Paul here is that Jesus lives in glad submission to the Father's will, and he does so for a purpose. In part, he does that on our behalf because we failed in that way. So he lives in submission to the Father on our behalf, and then he brings us back into the Father's family, and we live in submission to the Father uh, with with Jesus, who has been doing that on our behalf. But Jesus is fully God, co-equal with God the Father. He submits to the Father's design for a purpose, for the Father's fame and for the good of the family. He does so for that purpose. And that's why Paul says that God may be all in all. Those are beautiful words. When God first created Adam and Eve, God was all in all. The, the world revolved around God's glory and God's fame and human flourishing. We rejected God, and so rather than God being all in all, Adam became all in all, Eve became all in all, John Ransom became all in all, I become all in all, right? That's, our, that's, our, that's, that's us in our rebel form. And so Jesus brings us back to our created purpose where God is all in all. And it's beautiful and it's life-giving. It gives glory to God and it's good for us, guys. So listen, I get that humanism tells a compelling story. I got it. I got that it's the dominant narrative in our culture. I get it. And I get that it appeals to a certain logical sense. I get it. I get that there are aspects of it that are, comp- that are compelling and it's a strong narrative. But listen, the resurrection story is far more consistent with our lived experience as humans in this broken world. How so? Deep down, you don't need me to tell you you need redemption. You want redemption. How do you even know that's a thing? How do you even know redemption's a possibility or something to be hoped for or something to want? If humanism's true and this life is all there is and there's nothing after death, where does that come from? Why do you want redemption for yourself? Why do you want healing for yourself? Why do you want it for other people? Why do you want it for our culture? Why does our culture, without knowing the answers, why does our culture yell injustice? Because justice exists. And because deep down, everybody knows what we live in is so broken and so marred. But if humanism's true, that's really all that can be hoped for. And then death. The resurrection speaks a better word and tells a better story. It's far more consistent. We know we need redemption. We long for it. And so the resurrection story, the narrative is more beautiful, more compelling, more convincing, more helpful, and I would argue more necessary. It answers the hard questions. Then in verses 29 to 34, here's where Paul says, all right, here's what it looks like to live a life captivated by the better story of the resurrection. Now, admittedly, it starts weird. Verse 29, we're like, what? What kind of a cult do we belong to? Baptism for who? The dead? So just for the record, Nowhere in the Bible is baptism for the dead ever taught as a thing. Because that is not a, I say it as clear as I can, that is not a Christian practice. It's not a Christian practice. So what's going on there? Maybe two possibilities. My second possibility is my favorite, and I'll, I'll give it to you. First one is, maybe it was being expressed in a Christian setting then. Not a Christian teaching, but like a merging of culture with the gospel. Maybe an impulse in, in these pagans who had received the gospel, and they're thinking, man, what about my parents and grandparents who died without the hope of the gospel? And so maybe it was this local expression of being, hoping that they could do something in this lifetime for the redemption of dead relatives. Like maybe, maybe, but we just have nothing to base that opinion on. Maybe. But what I think, and I think what a lot of commentators would, would suggest is, what is baptism anyway? The imagery of baptism. What is it giving us as a picture? Dying, death to life, right? Buried with Christ, raised to life. But I was dead before I'm buried with Christ. Like I'm, I'm dead and now I'm alive. So it's almost as Paul is saying, like the baptism for the dead is that John Ransom is baptized for John Ransom's dead self. Like I'm being baptized on behalf of my dead self when I was baptized, right? It's an acknowledgement that I was dead, I need life, and Jesus' resurrection is the only pathway to that redeemed life. I think that's what he's saying. I'll just admit to you, I don't know for sure. Please do your own work and maybe you'll come to a different conclusion. But I think that's what he's saying. And if that's what he's saying, he's like, look, if there's no resurrection, you guys are super weird and maybe you're part of a cult. Like, what is baptism anyway? You dunk in water or you pour water on people? Like, why? That's just weird. What are you doing? If there's no resurrection, if there's no movement from death to life, baptism is meaningless, okay? But now let's move on where he's abundantly clear about risk. Verses 30 to 32. Paul's like, dude, I take risks for God's fame and the good of other people all the time, every day of my life, real risk. 
I, my life is at risk. I flirt with death almost every day, and I do it motivated by the gospel. I've almost died on multiple occasions. So Paul's just asking, why in the world would I make those choices? Why would I risk the one life I have right now for, for a God who didn't even raise from the dead? And for, for honestly, why would I even risk myself for you if the resurrection's not true? Why would I do that? Why would I make these choices if YOLO, or if I, if I only lived once, is actually true? You would not. You'd live a life of self-preservation for your good, because this is all you got. You don't just give it away. You're very careful, and you're very guarded, and you've got to make sure you get what you need and you want. This is it. This is your one shot. And that's what he said. He quotes a Greek poet here who says, look, the outcome of you only live once is eat, drink, eat, and drink. Just live it up, do you, for tomorrow you die. That's the only choice you're left with if you're a humanist, if you, if you play that out to its logical end, if today is all we have. But when tomorrow's resurrection shapes our today, we have profound freedom to sacrifice and risk and even die in pursuit of God's fame and human flourishing. So you can, look, I'm just, this is me personally, you can keep humanism. I get it. I get it, and I get why it can be compelling, but you can have it. I don't want it. There is a better and more beautiful, and more compelling narrative that I am glad to live and die by. Give me the resurrection narrative. We have profound freedom to sacrifice risk and even die. Yeah, give me the resurrection all day and every day. Verses 33 to 34, he's like, guys, you're really deceived though. You're more shaped by the culture. YOLO's, it's the way you live. He says, look, your bad company has ruined your good morals. He's not saying they've chosen their friends poorly. It's just a figure of speech for saying the, the culture's really forming you here. Like the gospel's not forming you. It's corrupting you here. Um, you got to stop, man. You, you, you gotta, the word he uses is wake up. You got you to wake up. It's like you're in a drunken stupor. Now, none of you would admit that you'd watched uh, Afterlife. Fine. You can tell me later because I know one or two of you did. Um, because it's on Netflix, and we've been in quarantine for like two years, so I know you did. Um, drunken stupor? I was trying to break the ice with afterlife. That's pretty mild, but okay, nobody wants to admit to a drunken stupor either? Fine. Look, but for your friends who have been in a drunken stupor, how have you heard that it feels like the next day? Just play with me here miserable. The reason it's called a hangover is because that's exactly what it is. That's not a positive way of saying, nothing good that lingers into the future is called a hangover. Like nothing good. Only bad things that linger into the future are characterized as a hangover. It's full of regret and waste and misery. Paul's saying, don't go on living in that stupor. YOLO is a drunken stupor. You're living like those who have no knowledge of God, no knowledge of the resurrection. And I say this to your shame, wake up. Living like tomorrow's resurrection shapes your today will protect you from falling into a drunken stupor in the first place. The resurrection story is more beautiful and compelling than humanism because of what it frees us from and what it frees us for. I'm not a slave to today. You're not a slave to today. Today doesn't have to be perfect. Today's not ultimate. Tomorrow's not ultimate. Uh, My needs, my wants, they're not ultimate. They don't all have to be met right now. I'm not a slave to today. I'm free to sacrifice and risk with no fear of death. In fact, you can kill me, but since the resurrection is true, you can't take my life. This is not it for me. This is only the beginning of the narrative. My life now and my life after the resurrection are inseparably linked, and you, can, you, you, you simply cannot take that from me. You can kill my body, but you can't take my life. Guys, again, I get humanism. And I'm not disrespecting anybody who holds that point of view. I'm just saying for me personally, in light of the gospel, you can have it. I don't want it. Because there is a far better and more beautiful and honestly more compelling and honestly one that answers the tough questions about our broken world, and that is the resurrection narrative. All right. Finally. That's your favorite word that I ever say, isn't it? Finally. But I got all this to go. Finally. (laughs) 35 to 38, Paul's just going to say, look, tomorrow's resurrection, it's a beautiful story, but just bear with me. It's a story of mystery. It is a story of victory, but it's also a story of mystery. Remember Ricky's quote from the beginning. Ricky said, man, I mean, you can believe in an afterlife if that makes you feel better. But once you realize you're not going to be around forever, I think that's what, that is what makes life so magical. 
We don't use the word magical enough, do we? Magical is a beautiful word. When I was a kid, the circles of Christianity I grew up, there was no redemption for magical. Magical was immediately equated with witchcraft or Satan or, right, like uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Satan. Uh, Not even like Harry Potter, like just no magic, no magic. And I'm sorry, mom, I shouldn't say it that way. Mom was, I had fantastic parents. But you want magical, don't you? You want magic. Even though you're grown up now, deep down, we crave this magical thing, right? When we think of the word magical, we think of wonder. We think of a sense of awe. We think of joy, worth, value, significance, just being so inspired. You think of the innocent optimism or joy of a child. It's just, they're overcome by something, and so it's magical. The reason you crave that sense is because that's what you're created for. That's what you're created for. Like deep down in the image of God within you, which a humanism has to reject, but the resurrection narrative tells you you're created to live in that kind of a sense of awe. When God is all in all, like Paul said, you will live a magical existence. You will live a sense of awe that shapes all of your life. And it's beautiful. Um, so, man, you want magical then? Like Gervais wants magical. I want magical. We all do. How about this? N.T. Wright said it this way. Death is the unmaking of God's creation. But the resurrection is its remaking. That's magical. And I will take the remaking of God's creation all day long. That's far more magical a story than the story of humanism. And so verse 35, Paul's like, all right, look, we've been talking about this bodily resurrection thing. I get it. You're all a bunch of skeptics and cynics. You grew up on Bill Nye, the science guy. You want answers, right? Like, so some of you are going to ask, how are the dead raised, Paul? Like, John, I find that we were raised, but how exactly does that happen? What kind of a body do we come with then? And Paul's just going to say, look, have a, look, my answer's not going to totally satisfy you. It's mystery and victory. Look at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. It's Paul's kind of way of saying, this is a God thing. I'm going to explain it to you a little bit, but it's, it's, it's full of mystery. But verse 57, thanks be to God, even though it's a story of mystery, it is a story of beautiful victory. And he's going to show us how. So our resurrection is a transformation. It's not resuscitation of what you have right now. Okay, it's not just resuscitation. Thankfully, right? I mean, can I? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Upgrade time. So it's it's transformation. Um, It's not reincarnation. The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. It's also not a disembodied existence. Okay, it's a bodily resurrection, a transformation. Verses 35 to 41, we're all worried about how. God says, relax, this is my responsibility. I'm gonna give you the body that I've chosen to give you. It's beyond you, but check it out. I'm gonna give you a little glimpse into how it's gonna play out. First example is botany. He said, a seed comes to life when it dies in the ground, but the seed is nothing like the fruit. See, we're just trying to do this one for one thing, and God's just saying, you can't. You can't do a one for one. It's beyond your imagination. It's better and more beautiful. So that's good news for us, right? So last night I helped Owen put carrot seeds into the ground. I only did it because Linnea asked me to do. I would never support another human being planting carrots in God's beautiful green earth. So I planted the devil's vegetable and in a few weeks or months, like why is it orange and why does it come up from below the surface of the earth? You answer me that. So I planted the carrots. The seeds are beautiful. I know it's weird. Seeds are beautiful. Uh, And then here comes the fruit. What's the point? They look nothing alike. The seed is nothing like the fruit. And so Paul's just saying, look, I know you want the answers. Just have to be okay with the reality that God's God's in control. He's got a plan. He's going to do it. It's not a one for one and it's beyond your comprehension. Okay. So he does that with botany and now biology. He says, consider different kinds of flesh, humans, animals, birds, fish, all different, right? That's why eating out is so much fun. All different. And then astronomy, same with the stars, same with the planets. They're different than anything on earth. They're different from each other. The sun is different than the moon. The stars are different from each other. Same for us, okay? No one for one, beyond our comprehension, it's going to be beautiful, to use Ricky's word, magical. It's going to be awe-inspiring, and that's what awaits us. But God, God is in complete control. And then Paul gives us a few more glimpses, verses 42 to 44. He says, look, our body now, it's perishable, but our body then, imperishable. So what I have now is fading out and dying. What I have then will be, imp- it never will, right? It never will. 
My body now is consumed with dishonor, frail, broken, falling apart, weak. Uh, But then it will be glory, like as God intended. Now it's all about weakness, then raised in power. And then he uses two words, which are like, Paul, all right, this is already kind of confusing enough. He says there are natural bodies and there are spiritual bodies. What's he mean? Well, he explains it right here. Adam is the natural, Jesus is the spiritual. Uh, The first man, Adam, is natural, meaning from the earth, man of dust, right in the text. So we are like Adam now. We bear his image now, and it's corrupted. But after the resurrection, Jesus, the second man, who is spiritual, meaning he's from heaven, our bodies will be like Jesus' body in the resurrection, bearing his image with incorruptibility. It's going to be incredibly amazing. And guys, look, verse 50 now, Paul kind of brings it all together. This is why the resurrection matters so much for you today. What does he say? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Guys, that's Paul's way of gently telling us that you cannot gain citizenship in Jesus' perfect kingdom where systemic injustice is eradicated if you yourself carry injustice with you. Injustice will not enter the kingdom. In our rebellion, we all carry our own injustices, okay? We have them. Flesh and blood, if you're still in Adam's image, broken, marred, rebel, unjust, unjust, you can't gain citizenship into Jesus' perfect kingdom as long as you remain like your father Adam. You can't get there on your own. The only way into the kingdom, the perfect kingdom, is through Jesus, through faith in him, is death, burial, and resurrection. The pathway to the, to, to, if you want to leave the sad, stinging narrative of humanism behind, the only pathway out of that story is by faith in the work of Jesus on your behalf. And through that faith, he expends his power on your behalf and brings you into his perfect kingdom. So guys, I just, like, that's just his way of saying your response to his claim of a resurrection matters so much. Right there, that's what he's saying. Your response matters. It matters because in verse 51, Jesus is going to return. In fact, Jesus is going to return while people are alive. So not everybody's going to die. We don't know when he's coming back. Not everyone's going to die. But when he returns, even the living will need to be transformed. So the dead will all be resurrected. But even the living will need to be transformed as well. That will happen. Why? Verse 52, because the dead will all be raised. So whether you believe in the resurrection or not, you're going to be resurrected. You don't have to believe it. You're going to be resurrected. Now, the problem is, the Bible tells us everyone will be resurrected. Some will be resurrected to judgment, and some will be resurrected to life. So if you reject Jesus, if you cling to the humanist narrative, you reject his substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf, you will be resurrected, but to face the judgment from your creator for your rebellion against him. I think Daniel summarizes it in really a sobering way. Many of those who sleep, meaning those who are dead, in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. While the resurrection narrative is beautiful, it's not beautiful if you've rejected Jesus in this lifetime. It's chilling. It's, it's an eternity. It's, it's, it's a forever of judgment, shame, and contempt. But for those who have repented and believe, the resurrection is uh, the entrance into this life with Jesus in his perfect kingdom. And that's how the story wraps up. Verses 54 to 55, Paul says, when all of this is done, death is swallowed up in victory. That, I like that. I like that. That feels really good. That's, that's really hopeful. Death is swallowed. I like the, the imagery of death being swallowed whole. It's gone, right? Swallowed whole. The sting of death will be gone. Death stings. It's not what's meant to be. That's why it stings. And Paul says that our rebellion is the sting of that death. Our sin is the sting of that death. But Jesus will have taken the sting of that death in our place. That's what verse 57 means where Paul says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the victory right there, that the sting of death is taken by Jesus. So that's what Jesus took on the cross in our place. The sting that you're supposed to know in death multiplied out by the millions and billions of people who would repent and believe. That is the sting that Christ felt in your place when he died, a substitutionary death. So he takes the sting. And guys, man, because Jesus takes the sting of death, humanism's sad and stinging story is replaced with a better and more beautiful narrative of resurrection. You pick I, for one, will take the resurrection narrative all day, every day. And guys, don't be embarrassed about the resurrection narrative. Like, become a storyteller. Let it tell its own story. Don't be embarrassed 
I, man, and I say this with all, with all respect. Boy, Freud would be proud. It was not a slip. I say this with all respect. I would be embarrassed to hold humanism for an entire, like I, I, I would not want to share that narrative with my children or my friends. I wouldn't want that narrative to be true, right? I'll take the resurrection narrative all day, every day. Paul just wraps it this way. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is what one eye on the resurrection will do for you. It will make you into this kind of person because you will be awe-inspired by God and you will be so overcome with the hope of the redemption that's to, to come that you will get after it in whatever works God given to you to do in whatever role you have. It's not that whatever role he's given you, You'll be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, knowing that your work is not in vain. So you keep pressing, you keep risking, you keep sacrificing. You live a full today with no fear of tomorrow, no fear, relentless optimism, working hard, pursuing justice because you know that's exactly what Jesus is pursuing and it is what will be in the future. And so we are working into what will be post-resurrection, relentless optimism, Work hard and the freedom to rest because everything doesn't depend on today and everything depends on the work that Jesus has already done. So you can rest. You can enjoy today with an eye on tomorrow's resurrection. So guys, we will become who we are, a united family in a fractured city, only when tomorrow's resurrection becomes increasingly the most certain and the most hopeful existence of our today, of our today right now. Grant, are you praying for us this morning? John's praying. All right, John's going to come and just lead us. He'll pray a personal confession. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit is prompting you to confess, uh, but John's going to lead us uh, that way as a family.